Coming up next, the first in a many-part series on Narnia. everybody, welcome to The Booking. My name is Nathan Alverson. I'm your humble and obedient host, the Lord of Validation, they call me. A title that I've had for many a year. And we've got Brandon Chastine over there, Ghost Brandon. Hey, hey. The scholar who's a baller of reading. Brandon, how yeah, you doing? Doing pretty great, Nathan. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. And of course, Brandon, yeah. join me in welcoming our third compatriot. Okay. The third musketeer, the third caballero. Caballero, yeah. Uh, the pastor who's a master of reading, yeah. Beastmaster Funky Town yeah. himself, Jacob Menzel. Welcome, Jake. Thanks, Brandon. Guys, this episode might be an entry point for people into the booking because they like Narnia. It's a popular property. And in the past, I'd say C.S. Lewis has done about as much business for us as anything. Yeah, and, true. And we've, we've had a controversial relationship with C.S. Lewis, or... Is that the right word for it? Other people uh-huh. have considered it to be controversial. I don't know. I don't consider it to be all that controversial. I, I mean, just think we have an accurate. We calls them like we sees them. Yeah. And yep. we see some problems with C.S. Lewis. Perhaps we'll get into that today. But if, if someone's entering the booking for the first time, what do they need to know about this podcast? We're three best friends, a scholar, a pastor, and a provocateur. That's me. Yep. I'm the Provocateur, not the scholar, pastor, and provocateur. That's right. <laughs> All three in one. Brandon the scholar, Jake the pastor, and Nathan the provocateur. And yep. we uh, love books and we love reading them together and discussing them. That's what we do. Are we the best Christian literature podcast? No, that would be a podcast, as I like to point out, that talks about things like Left Behind or The Oath by Frank Peretti. I think but, we're just the best literature podcast, period. Are we the best literature podcast? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And... We're going to talk to you about Narnia today. We are. And the way that this show works, usually, what'll happen is you'll hear a sound like this. <laughs> What's that? It's the contextual Texan firing off his guns. Yeah. That's Brandon Chastine. He's from Texas, and he's going to provide some much-needed context. Mm-hmm. If you didn't, this is your first time listening to the show, you should know Brandon's from Texas. You can't tell by my Texas accent. If you can't tell by his <laughs> thick Texas. If you were here, you'd be able to tell by the 10-gallon hat that he's wearing, yep. the six shooters that he's got around his waist, Always. the giant hunk of steak that he's eating Yep, from Texas Roadhouse, or as Brandon calls it, Roadhouse. Yeah. And Brandon likes to provide context. The only podcast while on a horse. While on a horse, <laughs> that's right. Uh, he's the contextual text, and he's going to provide some context on... I dare say C.S. Lewis, the books of Narnia, all the things that we're going to discuss over the next at least seven. Or I think we're going to try for an episode per book at least. So you are in for yeah. a lot of Narnia in the near future, I thought, folks. I thought it might be fun to do a little bit of context for each book as we get there. Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. It won't be long. Sure. Just a couple minutes or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love are it. Are you going to do the whole like corresponding to astrology? Yeah, we should. Thing. That would be fun. What corresponds to astrology? I guess I'll find out. Yeah, you'll have to. I wait wait with braided breath. You got to do it now. Okay. Provide some much needed content. Oh, you got to let out a hail and hearty yeehaw, though. Yeehaw! That's a trope of the- Have have we ever asked you what part of Texas you're actually from? No. What part of Texas are you from? I'm just south of Fort Worth. Just south? You know what Fort Worth is nicknamed? 
What's that? Cowtown. Cowtown. Yeah, because they All have right. a downtown that's was where downtown they would Cowtown. Downtown Cowtown, an area where they would sell cattle. That's the name Cowtown. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but saying you're from south of Fort Worth is like I'm from Burleson, little town just south oh, of Fort Worth. Oh, okay, Burleson. All right. Yeah. <laughs> now everybody understands. Now everybody understands. <laughs> About 10 miles south of Fort Worth, Kelly Clarkson came from our town. There you go. That's yeah. that's all, right. all you really need she, to know. Yeah, she sold popcorn in our theater. So. Have you gotten popcorn from Kelly Clarkson? Probably. Nice. I don't know. I don't remember. If only. Guys. Maybe working in the AMC theater in Texas. Brandon, Burleson. please shut up. This episode <laughs> has to be on point. Oh, okay. This is, this is our episode... <laughs> this is this is this is this episode is for an entry point for new people. Yes, evergreen, it's evergreen. Yeah, this is an evergreen. People are going to come back. This is going to be one of their favorite podcast episodes of all time. Probably it'll get in Forbes or whatever IndieWire. I don't know. Somebody does like a top fifty podcast episodes every year. Probably this one will yeah. get in there. Top the list. Top the list. No number one. So yeah. let's. So this is like a great podcast talking about a great book. It's chocolate and peanut butter. It's vampire and blood. It's oh, a weird second analogy. Yeah. Well, two things that go together. It's like a cat to catnip. Oh, and that's something. And we'll talk about that next episode because this episode's going to be on point. Next episode, we'll talk about the cat's trailer, which dropped. Oh, no. Oh, it did, did it? Oh, oh no. Buddy, yep. Well, guess what? That's a good segue because <laughs> would you guys like to know what I spent I my, last, my last hour doing? What did you spend your last Reading hour doing? My first. T.S. Eliot. The hour slowly started to shift towards, I typed in T.S. Eliot on Christianity. Mm-hmm. Then I typed in T.S. Eliot on sin. Mm-hmm. And then I eventually got to the point why was T.S. Eliot more of a Christian than C.S. Lewis? <laughs> Which is what I Googled. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> are we firing shots this early? We are. Shots we are like, fired. Okay. Guys, we like Narnia, right? Yeah, we yeah. love Narnia. Okay. And, and, Narnia's and, and, great. And we like C.S. Lewis, sort of. We do. We'll get to it. All right, Brandon. But it's just interesting. You have these two guys who are paired. Mm-hmm. We have T.S. Eliot, who in 1922 published The Wasteland, one of the most influential poems of the modernist era. Mm-hmm. And then in 1926, 27, uh, John or John however you would want to pronounce it, a famous English poet. Have you ever heard of him? Uh, Benjamin. I haven't. He was the poet laureate of England for a while. And he actually studied with the 27-year-old C.S. Lewis. And he famously said that he learned how to make hard things boring from C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> wow. He did not like Lewis. And he has his correspondence with Lewis later where he says, to you, poetry is only about philosophy and, and thinking and stuff like that. To me, poetry is about image and visualization and sound. C.S. Lewis would, did not write him a favorable letter and kept him out of teaching high school and stuff. So they didn't have a very good relationship with one another. There so Benjamin could have been given the wrong perspective. But what, he, what we do know from Benjamin and from other sources is that around this time, C.S. Lewis really derided and hated T.S. Eliot. And especially the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Mm. And he wrote... <laughs> He wrote a poem, which was supposed to be a satirical poem with some of his friends that they were going to send to T.S. Eliot to try and get T.S. Eliot to publish in one of his journals. And if they did, they were going to reveal to the whole world how this was just a satirical poem that T.S. Eliot had published and they were just making fun of him. And this just shows how modernist poetry is just awful. And as far as critics can tell, T.S. Eliot never read it. (laughs) (laughs) Got him. (laughs) Or at least didn't give these guys any mind. One of the critics I read said it was like an upstart mouse trying to go up against like a lion. Wow. Basically. But it's interesting because they both have a similar trajectory. T.S. Eliot started out as an atheist, very famous poet in the 20s, became part of what was called the Bloomsbury Group, 
loosely related to the um, Lost Generation, mm -hmm. kind of part of that, but not really one of the figureheads of it. But then in the late 20s, Elliot had a conversion and he became an Anglican. He was a part of this Anglo-Catholic movement, which was 1930. So they were actually, late 20s was when T.S. Eliot was converted. Early 30s was when um, C.S. Lewis was converted as well. And when T.S. Eliot was converted, uh, Virginia Woolf famously, have you ever heard the quote that she said about him? I've had a most shameful and distressing interview with poor dear Tom Eliot, uh, who may be called dead to us all from this day forward. He has become an Anglo-Catholic, believes in God and immortality, and goes to church. I was really shocked. A corpse would seem to be more credible than he is. Wow. I mean, there's something obscene in a living person sitting by the fire. In believing in God. So T.S. Eliot, when he became, when he converted, he actually had to take some pressure and some fire from these peers of his who were part of this Bloomsbury group. And he, it was like he was uh, revoking that part of his past mm -hmm. and moving into something else. And so after that, he would still have a successful career as a poet and he would end his life. He wrote oh, Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. Mm -hmm. Memory all alone in the moonlight. Now all our new listeners have shut off. Ah, they're still here. You're still here, aren't you? They're yeah, it's okay, T.S. Eliot. Brandon will talk about C.S. Lewis soon enough. And here's something. So, and here's a quote just by T.S. Eliot that I liked. He said, with the disappearance. <laughs> that soon. With the what? Sorry, I'm talking what'd to listeners. Uh, what would you say? I'll get back to C.S. Lewis. <laughs> yeah. No, this is, the, this is getting somewhere. Okay, yeah, no. This is, this this is, is all, this is prologue. Right, this is prologue. With the disappearance of the idea of original sin, with the disappearance of the idea of intense moral struggle, the human beings presented to us both in poetry and prose fiction today, and more patently among serious writers than in the underworld of letters, tend to become less and less real. And I think if anyone wants to know what that has to do with anything, they should go back and listen to our discussion of Till We Have Faces. Mm -hmm. It's this idea with the disappearance of the idea of original sin, with the disappearance of the idea of intense moral struggle, the human beings presented to us both in poetry and prose today tend to become less and less real. This is T.S. Eliot writing this. And then he went and he had this wonderful book of uh, poems about cats. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're fantastic. You should go and read them to your children. Yeah. His life parallels in many ways C.S. Lewis. Mm. C.S. Lewis started out, he was a scholar. He, became, he tried to become a successful poet, but he was very reactionary. He wanted to be more traditional. And at least this was always, always his excuse. And instead wrote some actually pretty bad poems. I don't know if you ever tried to read any of his poetry. I try not to read poetry by people who aren't famous for poetry. Yeah, so his me. biggest work was called Dimer. I think this was around 1923 when he wrote this. And one of the critics said, the metrical level is good, the vocabulary is large, but poetry, not a line. <laughs> that was the review that he got. Oh, wow. Here you had this kid. He was very well educated. He loved poetry. He didn't know how a good line sounds. Uh, I mean, that's, I think from the beginning, we can say that his prose is without compare. Mm -hmm. It's like He's right up there with E.B. White mm -hmm. as far as just beautiful prose. He cares about the sound of words, but he wasn't able to write poetry. And I think when, when I started with that Betjeman critique, that kind of gets at it. All his mm -hmm. poetry was very heady. It was very philosophical. And when you say his prose, I think what you mean is his uh, essay. His essay. Like his, his descriptive image powers are not yeah. what he's famous for. Yeah. And even then he could. Like right. he has the famous child at sea with the mud cakes. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a great. Yeah, he was great with metaphor. Mm -hmm. But I do think that Betjeman was, or Betjeman, I'm sure somebody's going to critique my, our, our British listeners can critique me. What was I saying? Oh, they were getting at something about one of his failures. Mm -hmm. And we just had all this big discussion about poetry, how 
poetry deals with image and sound and meter. And I think that for him, it was more about, he was very uh, anachronistic in the way he approached poetry and that he wanted to all, it all to be about philosophy and about these intellectual things that just weren't poetic. Right. And yet this made him very angry and very desperate at that time. But he would eventually get to the point where he would have a very successful career. And he would become a convert in the 30s, and his career would end pretty much with his most successful work being for children. Mm -hmm. And between 1950 and 1956, he wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, which is what we're reading right now. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) it's really hard to talk about C.S. Lewis on a Christian podcast Mm. because so many people have talked about C.S. Lewis. A lot of people have talked about C.S. Lewis. So everybody has an opinion on who C.S. Lewis is. Everybody has an idea of who their C.S. Lewis is. To such an extent today, I kind of had a revelation that I don't think half the people who talk about C.S. Lewis are actually talking about C.S. Lewis, but about who they want C.S. Lewis to be. Mm. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think so. Like how in you, other words, you, when you talk about Jimmy Stewart, you're really talking about George Bailey. Yeah, what they want him to be is this imaginative defender of, po- of like mythopoic stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I found this essay on Christianity Today ca- talking about Oh, something like that, an unexpected joint project of T.S. Eliot and C.S. Lewis and the mythopoic tradition. So everybody wants to really talk about C.S. Lewis in terms of how he brought this discussion of myth to Christianity. Mm. And so what people really want to do is they don't know that they want to baptize Carl Jung, but they want to baptize Carl Jung and they need the closest thing they can to do it. And C.S. Lewis is that. Is that. Yeah. I think that's a good way of putting it. Jake, you're going to have to unpack that. Yeah, unpack that, Jake. <laughs> yeah. Give me an hour for a minute. <laughs> that's the first time I've ever said that dumb sentence. But <laughs> um, I know what I you mean, mean. I think it's true. Brandon knows what you mean. I think it's true. Brandon thinks it, but some of our listeners are probably like, huh? Carl Jung was a early 20th century philosopher of sorts. He was the disciple of Sigmund Freud. He had to summarize. He, he pioneered a theory of the unconscious, which included... The collective unconscious, yes. which produced the all of the myths that we know right. um, from history, including the Bible. And what men need, what people need, is uh, not just objective fact, but narrative truth, narrative fact. Narrative truth is a way to, to understand yourself and your place in this whole wide universe right. that the reason in. a lot of stories are the same and follow certain patterns is because we're all unconsciously telling the same stories and the same ideas that situate same... us and help us understand ourselves and our place in the universe and help us make sense of our own lives and the journeys that we're all on on individually and the journey that we're on collectively as a race as mankind and so yeah the idea of the monomyth the one myth that was underneath all the myths, the one story that was being told over and over and over again and all these archetypes, mm-hmm. fathers and sons and dragons and heroes heroes and uh, all that sort of thing. And so what he did was basically in the cold, everything that came out of the Enlightenment and that was moving into the modern era, he said story is important and essential for the sanity of men. We need to understand our place in a story. We need narrative truth as well as all these other things that we're going to lose our humanity and we're going to lose beauty and goodness and all of these sorts of things. And so that's what he, even in his like counseling, his psychologizing of people, that's what he, he focused on and talked about. And then a guy named Joseph Campbell, who's a disciple of Carl Jung, wrote a book called the man, uh, 
the hero with a thousand faces, mm-hmm. sort of trying to distill what are the essential elements of this monomyth, this one great story. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hollywood, ever since, has been using his blueprint. So all yeah. things Star Wars and all things Marvel and all things any. And it doesn't even have to be a say it's a story about a hero, but lots of lots and lots and lots of stories that you love are essentially Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. Right. And even if they're not consciously distilled from Campbell, they are conscious or they are consciously or unconsciously distilled from real myth- kind of yeah, mythology. Real or, mythology, yeah. which does contain these elements. What's compelling about Young, what's compelling about Campbell, what's compelling about all these guys is that stories do help us discuss and understand our lives. There's a lot of truth in all of that, right? There's a lot of truth Mm -hmm. in all of it. And and C.S. Lewis was right there Mm -hmm. and buying into all of this same sort of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And so was Tolkien. So were all the Inklings. All the Inklings were... Charles Williams was real weird about that. Charles Williams on Barfield, all these guys. They were all really into this sort of thing. And so when Lewis is adopting Christianity, he's also... He's adopting a Christianity that is a... A Jordan Peterson-y, Carl Jungian kind. What'd you say? Pagan. A a pagan sort of Christianity. And you see that through everything that he writes. Yeah. What is the big pagan part in, um, it's all over the place, but just just a quick aside here. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe had a completely random one. that It has all kinds of, as Bacchus show up and Yeah, there's all that stuff. But then then there's something when Adam Aslan's getting sacrificed. Spoilers. What is it? Well, we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. Okay. All kinds of. And I, so this is actually helpful because I want to bring all this back to the question of T.S. Eliot at the mm-hmm. end. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> it's really real... about T.S. Eliot here. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, but the point is Christians are generally, you know, 20, 30, 50, 100 years behind yep. the times. And yeah. so Christians, like, it's now a really popular trend in Christianity over the last 15 to 20 years to realize that we all need to discover narrative truth and everyone has a story and we need to talk about our story and the story of scripture and the story of this and the story of that and the story of whatever. And so C.S. Lewis has become well, the poster boys for that. The kind of poster thing. boy for that, the, the patron saint of all these people who want to basically move away from, I think in many ways, just straightforward gospel preaching and, you know, the Bible. I'm truth to put it in and a word. truth and truth uh, to this sort of like, Carl Jungian, Carl Jung light, mm-hmm. Joseph Campbell light, and that is what C.S. Lewis is, right? Because Lewis understood story and this stuff better than a whole lot of people. He's still a really good storyteller, right. and as we'll find out as we keep going through this, we love all these stories. That doesn't mean that we have to pretend that there's something that they're not, yeah. right? Well, and people do, and. The dangerous thing about Young and Campbell and a lot of those guys is that there is a mystical... If, if, if all they were saying was, we all tell a lot of stories and it helps us think about things. And here's some of the stories that we tell and why they're important, why they've always been important across cultures. Fine. But there's a mysticism, a pagan mysticism that creeps into it. And I dare say creeps into Lewis. Lewis and you can listen to our Till We Have Faces episode to hear us talk a, a lot. Yeah, and it does. And then this there's, this thing, cheap, yeah. there's this cheap grasping onto like imagination and mm-hmm. myth that a lot of people in certain camps do. Mm-hmm. Well, I read a lot of blogs by a lot of people that mm-hmm. drove me a, a lot of crazy mm-hmm. <laughs> in preparing for this. And a lot of it was just about this mythopoic aspect or the story aspect or the imagination. And you're like, well, yeah, they could have come, they could have gotten the same lesson from Barney. Mm-hmm. Right. They didn't need C.S. Lewis for this. So that what they want to do is they want to grasp onto this guy who was an Oxford Don Yep, and have him 
justify their way of seeing the world. Yeah, right? it's, to be None fair, a lot of these people are, they're repenting of hardcore modern rationalism and materialism. Yeah, right. I repented out of a lot of that stuff. Lewis was life to me for a lot of those same reasons. Yeah. But yeah, we'll we'll get into our baggage in a little <clears throat> bit. But I, Cecil Lewis has been a tremendously helpful to me in a lot of ways, and I've really enjoyed his yeah. fiction, and I've really profited from his nonfiction. So, so yeah. have I. Yeah. I think we should probably all get that out of the way. Right? Yeah, let's just yeah, get that yeah. out of the way because we're not yeah. gonna just say everything's great. And yeah, I think part I of what we do in the bookending that. that I think makes people mad. Yeah, is we don't just deal with the book. This is not just a book club that way. We also deal with the way people think about the books. Mm-hmm. The way you can yep. approach the book that, and we take real issue with that sort of thing because we do think that there are wrong ways to approach things. Mm-hmm. And this sort of idolizing of a Lewis that never was, or just a part of Lewis, is weird. Well, and I remember I grew up with C.S. Lewis being a pretty big guy in our household, and I had yeah. we had like a little children's biography of Lewis, and it was just hagiography. Like yeah. he didn't do anything wrong. He wrote all these stories when he was a kid, and then I mean I think I think C.S. Lewis himself because he was nothing if not a witty kind of worldly wise man, he would have hated this thing, right? Yep. Like the C.S. Lewis that I know from reading his adult yeah. stuff, he would have just thought this was the silliest thing because it just made him sound great and his whole life sound wonderful. And well, it yeah, was just <clears throat> silly. Because there's the interesting problem of the Chronicles of Narnia is actually good. Mm-hmm. It's good children's literature. Mm-hmm. And he wrote good children's literature. And yet he got <laughs> grafted into a culture that often cheapens its art, mm-hmm. which is conservative Christianity. Yep. And so a lot of his thinking, a lot of his, what he was trying to do, for one, he was a scholar. First mm-hmm. and foremost, he was a scholar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. His greatest books are all books of scholarship. He was an English literature professor and that's what he would claim to be until the day he died. But he got pulled into this kind of uh, family Christian bookstore mentality. Not, he didn't think that way, but that's kind of what he's been grafted into. Mm-hmm. I guess that's kind of what I've been trying to say. Yeah, I mean, you say that's not an exaggeration. I used to go to a lot of Christian bookstores growing up, and there would always be this pink, frilly C.S. Lewis yeah. section. It'd be at least a whole shelf, and it'd be all his books, and it'd be like his scholarly works, but they'd be repackaged. You know, there's like a whole industry around selling the myth that is C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Yep. And so I think today, I've been, uh, well, with C.S. Lewis, especially this. Like I said, I've been trying to deal with how people think about authors and this. So this has really come to the forefront with me again. For one, this is just a, like an eternal recurrent issue mm-hmm. with me. Yeah. Because people, we've had it show up again where people have said, well, that's why you don't think about the author or think too much, too much about them. The problem is, is I don't, if you're not willing to argue with the author you're reading, then you shouldn't be reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The whole point of reading is to actually engage with the person. Yeah. And if I may add, right. the fun. Yeah, like yeah. absolutely. That's why I always kind of chase. Gonna, if you don't realize that you're engaging with a person, yeah, then I don't know that you really understand reading. Like, <laughs> it's, it's, I don't want to. I don't want to be defensive. Not every podcast is for everybody, but sometimes people will tell me they don't like this show because we're too hard on things. And it's like just because we're hard on something, a doesn't mean that you can't love it. Doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you can't disagree. Doesn't mean that we don't love it. But for me, part of the fun of doing this and of talking about these things is picking it apart. Yeah. You know, not picking it apart in a nasty way, but just asking the hard questions about it. Yep. That's that's part of the joy. Joy of reading. And so. Three days and days gone by. A needle pulling, pulling thread. thread. That's another little trope on the bookening. If this is your first time listening, Brandon will say so as a transition and then I'll screw it up. We've still got to get that tattoo. Yeah. Wait. So. Uh, <laughs> needle mm. pulling. Blah, blah, blah. Brandon, you were saying. 
T.S. Eliot, what I've gotten so far is T.S. Eliot was- And C.S. Lewis pretty great also guy. wrote children's literature. Yeah. C.S. Lewis was we're also- come back to that question. Kind of like T.S. Eliot. And so if we're trying to think about who C.S. Lewis was, mm-hmm. like who he actually was, one of the best places to start is just the facts of his life. The facts of his life. So let's get into his bio. The facts of life. Mm-hmm. Sound good? That facts sounds good. All right. He was born Clive Staples Lewis, November 29th, 1898 in Dundela Belfast. Dundela Villas Belfast. Yep. I always forget that he's an Irishman. He is. He's an Irishman at heart. In fact, one of the facts that I endeared him more, more to me was I found out that as an Irishman, he was not required to fight in World War I. He enlisted because he wanted to fight. That's cool. Yeah. Pretty cool of him. Could be that he just wanted out of his first year at Oxford, <laughs> but he did choose to go and do that. He was the second child of Albert Lewis, who was a prosecuting attorney. And Florence Lewis, also known as Flora, he had an older brother named Warren, and he would—he was very close to his brother Warren. Famously, as you said, they uh, wrote some children's books together when they were young. It was a very literary household. Apparently, his dad, even though he wasn't as um, educated as C.S. Lewis would become, was known for being able to spin a yarn, tell a story. And when he died years later, even though his sons kind of had become estranged from him, they would go home and just find boxes of letters and stuff that they that uh, Warren would then compile. And his mother was uh, an educated woman who actually, I think, had a couple newspaper or uh, magazine articles published. And so an educated family, a family that was interested in uh, intellectual pursuits, and he read quite a bit as a boy. And they created a world together. This is famous. Anyone who's a C.S. Lewis lover knows about this world called Boxen, which was an animal world. And apparently, I found out... <laughs> It's published. You can find Boxen? Oh, you can find Boxen. And I found Boxen. I read excerpts from Boxen. See, this is an example of what I'm talking about, folks. Yeah. They publish every piece of ephemera written on a napkin because they like to make it. Sir Big, Gollywog. Gollywog, my lord. Sir Big, get me mine armor. I and the good Sir Peter mean to find the king's ring. Exit Gollywog. Sir Peter, we set ourselves to a hard task. Sir Big, indeed we do, sir. This is the sort of scintillating material that is boxing, but this is his, yeah, this is his juvenilia. Hey, my ju- juvenilia was worse. This is the equivalent of people publishing Jane Austen's juvenilia mm-hmm. and then wondering why it's not Jane Austen. Right. <laughs> but it's interesting because what it shows us is the, these kids, they loved Beatrix Potter. They loved this world of fantasy and imagination. It also showed that he was very close to his brother Warren. His brother Warren brought his love of like geography, so India, with this world called Animal Land, and they created this world boxing together. Boxen would especially become important in 1908, which was a traumatic year for Lewis because his mother died mm. at the young age of not even 10 yet. He was just a little younger than 10, and his mother passed away. And this was very hard for both of them. Two reasons. One, they were close to their mother. So to lose their mother like that was very difficult. The second reason was their father kind of uh, drifted away from them and became very, not abusive, but emotionally distant. Mm. And so the boys had to rely even more on each other, which would become very important later in life when they would live together at the kilns, as you can see wonderfully um, portrayed in the movie Shadowlands. Yeah. And that, from what I can tell them, that particular portrayal is pretty accurate to mm-hmm. how they lived. Very reliant on one another. And knowing that his mother died that when he was that young and he would be motherless for his whole life helps explain a lot of stuff that would happen, why he got married so old, for example, to Joy Davidman. Also, his relationship to Mrs. Moore, which is disturbing, disturbing, but a lot of people try to justify it by saying it was more of a maternal relationship. Well, we'll get there. We're getting there. Okay. We'll get there. Patty Moore's mother. Mm-hmm. All right. He came across a poem uh, by Tennyson, and it's, or, I heard a voice that cried, Balder the beautiful is dead, is dead. 
in this, if you've ever read Surprised by Joy, you can go and you can read Surprised by Joy. A lot of that's his autobiography. This is where he got that secret imaginative life that concerned itself primarily with joy, a self-perpetuating desire that makes nonsense of our common distinction between having and wanting. There, to have is to want, and to want is to have. And this would be the guiding principle that would eventually lead him to Christianity. For his first part of his education, he was educated at home, and then he went, what? I'm sorry, that quote just reminded me of a really dumb Gospel Coalition article that we did a Popcorn Coalition spoof of. Singing Paul's. Yeah. Oh. A wanting that is more like a having a want, is yeah. more like a... That's, I think, po- that's probably actually where he got it. That, I know it is. That episode is responsible yeah. for the creation of Pastor Stu, right? I think that episode might eventually loom large in the children's biographies that they write about us. Huh. There you go. In 1908, he, joined, <laughs> he went, uh, so he was educated at home at first, and then he went to Weinerd House, and this would start his long history of being in boarding schools. Mm. 1910, mm. he went to Campbell mm. College, mm. two miles from Little Lee. At Weinerd House, he had a very bad experience. At Campbell College, he had a pretty good experience, had fond memories of that. And then he attended Cherbourg from 11 to 1913. It was during this period that he became heavily influenced by German and Norse mythology. Mm. And this is where he came up with this concept of the Northern, capital N, and surprised by joy. And this, again, would go back to this wanting that is a having, a having that is a wanting, this joy. And this is important because this theme, this, like Jake said, from Jung, we get this desire to make narrative sense of everything. Lewis would have this for himself and surprised by joy, too. He tried to find this guiding theme that he had from boyhood, and it was this idea of joy, this idea of wanting to have, and then Mm -hmm. also having just to want it. It was in 1913 that he went to Malvern College. He got into poetry then, wrote some poems during this. um, He read a lot of Yeats. He wrote a poem called Loki Bound, became friends with a guy named Arthur Greaves, who he would write a lot of letters to. That's only of biographical interest to people who want to go and read these letters because you can tell a lot about C.S. Lewis from these. They're interesting for Lewis scholars. Mm -hmm. It would also be during this period that he would have his very unfortunate section in Surprised by Joy where he tries to defend um, boys molesting one another, basically. That is an unfortunate section. And I don't think that's an unfair way of putting it, right? No, I don't think it's unfair at all. He says that there was a touch of the divine. That is the quote. Yes, and so... And no, I am not taking it out of context in a way that makes it sound worse. I want people to remember that when we get to 19, when we get to the 1950s and he, and he publishes Surprise by Joy, because that's near the end of his life. Mm-hmm. And in this autobiography of him looking back, it's his, his, basically his confessions. He writes a section like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. I almost feel like, I mean, people, people find it so incredible that they will go on, they have gone on and given us bad reviews telling us that we're lying about C.S. Lewis without having going without going back themselves and verifying. I almost just want us to quote. just read the quote. Yeah, and I mean, we've had one person recently that gave us a bad review for some misinformation they accused us of. Mm-hmm. Who's that? Who's the podcaster who does hardcore history? Dan Carlin. Carlin. Don, Dan Carlin, a great podcaster. He has a section where people can come and they can email him and correct him because when you're speaking live, sometimes you'll make mistakes. Always happy to have. We have made mistakes before. We do not claim to be mistakeless. And by well, we, well, I love that one of those was like misquote of a year. And yeah. uh, when Nathan read it out loud, it was you that quoted it wrong. And you just. Insta- I knew the correction. Yeah. You insta corrected the year on the spot off the top of your head. It's like, well, you know, just because you got the numbers inverted when he said it. 
first yeah. time. This person was already out to just look to give us a bad review. Yep. Are you looking up the quote? Well, we'll get there later. I'll, I'll have it. And so you can read it then. All right. So in 1914, he uh, went back to study with a guy named William Kirkpatrick, named the Great Knock, or nicknamed the Great Knock by him and his brother. He had prepared his brother to go to the academy, a military academy. He prepared Lewis to get into Oxford. And he was very impressed with Lewis. He thought Lewis read too much. Kirkpatrick was a rationalist, and he was a man who kind of confirmed, even though Lewis at this point was already an atheist, kind of confirmed C.S. Lewis in his atheism. And so it's important to know that C.S. Lewis at this point had, according to Surprise by Joy, these two warring inclinations within him. He had the world of the imagination, myth, this love of the Northern. And to him, the Northern just meant mythology, this, the, basically the one that you can't have. Because in, it's the idea of the gray horizon. You mm-hmm. want to get there, but you can't get there. Right. And so it's just this, this desire propelling you forward. And then he had this tendency to want to be rational, be a philosopher, make sense of life, like Kirkpatrick. During this period, he also began to fancy himself a poet. And he wrote about 52 poems, which poetryfoundation.com say are all mediocre at best. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was funny. That is funny. But uh, of course, they're the ones who then publish really awful lists of the 10 most. That's just another beef to. They published this list recently, and it made me really mad. It was just a bad list of these 30, 10 poets under 31 who were to be watched, and they were all just like... Wonderful? Wonderful, yeah. It was just all just uh, political posturing. I don't know how much to say without making me just seem like an angry white man, <laughs> but it was all just political posturing. That's all it was. All right, so we went to 1916. That year, his, this war within him began to grow even more severe. Um, he found, found Fantasties that year, which we've talked about. In one of the first episodes of the bookening, remember Fantasties? Yes, yeah, yeah George uh, McDonald's George book. McDonald, yeah, I'm not sure. I've read Fantasties, and I'm not quite sure what about it. And it's kind of creepy that this is showing my hand too much, but whatever. It's kind of creepy that this is the book he goes to. Mm-hmm. But this book baptized his imagination. Mm-hmm. Is what he said. So he said that at that point, it was kind of like the game was over. His ba- imagination was baptized, even though his reason had not yet been checkmate. Checkmated, as he famously says. And surprised by joy, the chapter's called Checkmate or something like that. His imagination had been baptized. It was now Christian, or it was at least theistic. So people want to find out what it looks like to have your imagination baptized, go and read Fantasties and Sweet Dreams if you do. Um, am I being too sarcastic? <laughs> this is, uh, George MacDonald, it's just, you should just explain it. It's, it's weird. It's just a weird book. It's about this guy who wakes up one day to find like fairies and stuff and his, the grass is growing in his room and he's in this fairy world. And then he has to go and try to find um, basically this Pygmalion statue that's running away from him. And it's a very bizarre story. I'm not quite sure why this baptized his imagination. And I've read the passage many times and I've read the book and it's like these things do not compute mm-hmm. sort of thing. He got something out of it. It might be just to be fair to Lewis. It could be like what we've talked about in the bookening before, where what you remember from a book yes. versus yeah. what the book actually does is very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he may have gotten something actually useful out of Fantasties that I didn't get. So I, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Sure. He was a young man, immature. Let's just, let's not hit too hard on that. Yeah. Okay. After that, he went to, uh, served in World War I. Like I said, as an Irishman, he did not have to serve, but he did. And so he eventually got a, a shrapnel injury during the Battle of Arras and was discharged. And so he, and he wouldn't actually have the shrapnel removed, I think, until 1944. Wow. So he actually lived with his injury for a while. So he was a war hero. 
And he made a friend there called Patty Moore who made him promise that if Patty Moore died, he would take care of his mother, Jane Moore. And Lewis agreed. (laughs) (laughs) He went back to Oxford after the war. And that's where his relationship with Jane Moore began, this uh, mother of Patty Moore. And this would be a relationship that would last for a good period of his life. He would actually live with her for a long period while he was at Oxford. He would help take care of her. And so there's a lot of speculation about what was the actual nature of this relationship. Jane Moore was a very difficult woman. Um, She was not an easy person. But yeah, people wonder. Um, And so the most charitable explanations are his mother died when he was young, and he saw in Jane Moore a mother that he didn't have. Mm -hmm. And so he took care of her. The less charitable explanations, I'm pretty sure, are intelligent listeners can kind of figure out for themselves. Read between the lines. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's really more to go into there, and you guys want to make any hay with that. I don't know why. No, I mean, I think it's fair to say that the the specul that there are things to fuel that kind of speculation beyond just people being modern and perverse. Yeah, there are his friends, some of the statements by them, and then some of his letters. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So there are reasons to, but then also this was in the twenties. He was what? He wasn't even thirty yet. You know, he's a red blooded male, so. You can read between the lines, but... With mommy issues. With mommy issues, right. yeah. Again, if we're being charitable, I, I don't know. What do you even say about that? Well, even if it was weird, there's a whole lot of variations of weird, so... That's right. Yeah. Who knows? That's what I guess. Thank All right. In 1919, he did actually get a poetry collection published under a pseudonym Clive Hamilton. And in 1922 and 23, he graduated with two different BAs, took firsts, which is a high honor at Oxford, and then became a tutor in Magdalen College, which is where he would stay until the 50s. So this takes us up to his end of his education, and then mm. we're starting to get into his career. And so we'll have about five years where he's just starting to be a teacher. The important things that are happening there is he becomes friends with J.R. Tolkien. While he was a student, he became friends with a guy named A.M. Owen Barfield. J.R. Tolkien got him into Old Icelandic. This is important because this got him into a club called the Coal Biters. Mm. And the Coal Biters would eventually become the Inklings. The Inklings. So... In 1929, partly due because from Tolkien, partly from some various readings that he had been doing, he became a theist. He's not a Christian yet. All right. 1928, his father died. And this was harder on him and Warren than they thought it would be. They were actually surprised at how hard it was. And this kind of reignited his friendship with his brother again. And, been, and so by 1930, with Janie and Maureen Moore, I think I kept calling her Jane, but it's actually Janie. Sorry. Mistake. Mistake. One star. But I admitted it. Janie Moore. I'm giving you one star. Okay, well, give me one star. I don't care. They bought a house called The Kilns, a house near Oxford in 1930, and they moved in together. And this would be his home for the rest of his life, where he would travel from college back to The Kilns as often as he could. Um, The household, and this is a quote directly from a source. I don't remember what source. The household included a dog, Mr. Papworth, a maid. Papworth. Yeah. And a gardener, Fred Paxton, who became the model for Puddleglum, the Marsh Wiggle. And Lewis is the silver chair. There's some fun Chronicles of Narnia trivia oh. for us right there. Isn't that great? That's wonderful. After Warren re-enlisted in 31, Lewis would spend weeknights in his rooms at Magdalen College. When Warren came back, Warren was traumatized by some of his experiences. Warren, he struggled with alcoholism the rest of his days. But he and Lewis would live together in the kilns until they both died. This gets us up to 1931, when we have the famous meeting with Dyson, one of his friends, and Tolkien especially. In Lewis's room late at night, they argued and argued and argued, and it ended with C.S. Lewis accepting the Christian myth as being the true myth. Mm. 
and he became a Christian. Yay. All right. That's the end of what? Chapter two? That's the <laughs> short little prologue in our short little... Okay. And so now we get to the latter part of his career where he actually becomes a famous writer. And so what's important to point out is he had not had any real success as a writer until after his conversion. All his success as a writer would be after his conversion. 1932, he wrote Pilgrim's Regress. Have, have either of you ever read this? No. It, I have. It's weird. It's a basic, It's his take on Pilgrim's Progress. But what happened also in 1932 was he published The Allegory of Love. Hmm. And this showed his brilliance as a literary scholar. This was He traced the history of the allegory of love, how it started as an allegory of adultery in the um, Elizabethan age in the courtly era and became the romance of marriage in later times. And just sort of traced that through literary history. He became, he got a lot of praise for that. People who kind of thought of him as a second rate or just a tutor or something began to respect him. He became friends with a guy named Charles Williams. And during this period, he also started the Inklings, where they would meet once a week in his rooms at Magdalen College, and then they would also meet at the Eagle and the Child, which they called the Bird and the Baby. And they would meet twice a week, and they would discuss many, many things. One of the most interesting things about the Inklings is that a lot of the most famous books that came out of the, this group, so they would actually read them at the, at the Eagle and the Child to one another. Mm-hmm. So you had The Hobbit was read there, parts of the Chronicles of Narnia were read there. And they would discuss them and argue about them. And um, it was basically their equivalent of the other groups that were formed at the time. You had the Bloomsbury group. You had the Lost Generation. What was the Algonquin Roundtable? Absolutely. Right? All these groups. Groups were a big thing for the modernists. And so whether he liked it or not, C.S. Lewis was kind of participating in a modernist uh, trend right there by having a friendly little literary circle. So after that, his career as a scholar took off. 1938, he publishes Out of the Silent Planet. Mm. Now his career as a liter- as a writer it slowly begins to move. It wasn't a huge hit. Some people were confused by it. <sighs> I was confused by this book. I was like, why am I reading this? Yeah. Why is this so boring? During World War II, his brother Warren would go actually, he would go back to fight because of his old war injury, C.S. Lewis would not. Instead, he would stay back and he would help with public morale through Christian apologetics. Mm. And it's this period where his career actually takes off. And it's because of the BBC. This guy named uh, James W. Welch invited him onto the BBC to start giving a series of news broadcasts. And what people realized was he had a great voice for news broadcasts. He was kind of a perfect voice for it. Have you ever listened to any of them? No. They're actually, they're pretty good. I mean, he had a great voice Mm -hmm. for this sort of thing. You can, he's always like a rich, booming voice is what he's described in. And yeah, it's true. You understand why he was just as famous, why he's just as known for being a public speaker as he is for as being a writer. He would eventually compile all these together into a book called Mere Christianity. And this is where his fame as a Christian apologist and novelist really took off. This is where he became famous. Like two-year period of World War II here. Not that World War II only lasted two years. Don't get me there, fact checkers. But in 1941, he also, (laughs) he, he gave his sermon, The Way to Glory. So you had the Mere Christianity lectures, you had Weight of Glory, all these things happen within that 1941 to 1942 period. And his career just goes like that. He becomes, he becomes no longer the private secluded tutor who he was to John Betjeman, who mm-hmm. was hard. Right. Even though it, uh, he, you have other accounts that said, well, actually his lectures were attended because he was known for being hard because it was just because he assumed all his people had, all his students had read more than they had. And he would pace back and forth. He had that sonorous voice that everybody praised him for later on. And he would quote, extensively from memory 
And so his lectures were very well attended and vibrant is what they said. So some people even then discount what Benjamin said. And so he was just an old, you know, he was just bitter at Lewis. Mm. So that is important. Sour grapes. Sour, Sour grapes. grapes. Sour yes. grapes. Babe. And that is one thing that we know is that maybe early on in his career, Lewis hadn't quite come into the teacher that he would become. Mm-hmm. But from all accounts, he was an amazing charismatic teacher and lecturer. Well, let's hear a little yeah. piece of sonorous. I hope it's sonorous. Brandon, you really built this up. Chesterton had the dumbest voice in the world. You ever listen to that? Yes. Clown? That was pretty funny. Hey. Hey, I'm Chesterton. Um, Okay. What's this? What did you find? It's a YouTube video. This is supposed to be from the Mere Christianity lectures on the BBC. A war-weary and bedraggled population drew inspiration from these addresses and made the Oxford Dawn a beloved name among many. Was this music at the front of it? No, they're just providing this text. Come on. Hey, I'm C.S. Lewis. <laughs> nope. Oh, come on. Okay, here we go. I've had to say a good deal about prayer. Nope. <laughs> Sorry. Going on to my main subject tonight, That's I'd like to deal with a difficulty some people find about the whole idea of prayer. The whole idea yeah. of prayer. Uh, well, His maybe deep, not. deep, sonorous so. voice. Yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Pinch your nose and... Yeah. Deep, sonorous. Yeah. It's, it's not... Uh, you can listen to some of his other lectures too, and he's not so uh, affected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and also, so, it's a crummy radio, old radio. Yeah. It's not going to. It be, doesn't always do that. Not going to make for maximum sonorous yeah. delivery. <sighs> where, where, where were we? Way to glory. Yeah, yeah, and so it would be in so 1941, Way to Glory. In quick succession after that, 43, Paralander was published. 45, That Hideous Strength. Out Same of this year. galaxy. Yeah, yeah. That novel. <laughs> Same year. I have great. it on great. I have it on the authority of no less than. Jake Menzel's old blog <laughs> that that novel is the other novels one of these it? days I'm going to publish some of the uh, things I stole off your computer that one time I'd be very sad about that if you did that please don't do that <laughs> what's good for the goose is not good for the gander you know that old saying right Great Divorce that, was also sure published during this period. Revenge is a dish that should not be served, I think. That's yeah. a famous saying. Sorry, Brandon. I'm Go just going to let it get as cold as possible. No, this is fun. This <laughs> is uh, because what also happened during this period was hey, his friendship. Boxing. His friendship <laughs> with Tolkien began to cool. Yeah. So, oh, hey. Yeah. Hey, so, nice tie-in. Yeah. All right, yeah. now keep it going. Because they argued with one another. Oh, hey. <laughs> they oh, dared. no. Now just roll through. <laughs> yeah, Tolkien yep. dared mm-hmm. think that in the 50s, in, through 56, when he started to publish Chronicles of Narnia, he dared to think that the Chronicles of Narnia was second rate. <laughs> if, if, if your goal in life is to be Tolkien, then yeah. Narnia is second rate. Yeah, I, I will, and that's I, what, I will, that's what Tolkien that thought. He, he said, well, you know, it's second rate. And he didn't like allegory. Yeah, and he didn't like allegory, which C.S. Lewis, and well, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about this when we get to the Chronicles of Narnia. He did his best to assure us over and over again that the Chronicles of Narnia is not an allegory. Oh, please. It's just another myth. It's not an allegory. It's a Christian myth. But yeah, so we would get to 1950, 56. This is when the Chronicles of Narnia were published in quick succession, back to back in this period. And we'll get to the history behind how that all started, I guess, at the beginning of the next episode, or do we want to do it now? No, we'll do it at the beginning of the next. All right, great. During the same period, 50s through 56, he published his English literature in the 16th century, which is one of his great books. I actually think it might be one of his best books. The three best books, I think, by C.S. Lewis. Should I go ahead and say them? Absolutely. Preface to Paradise Lost. Yep. English Literature in the 16th Century. Yep. And The Discarded Image. Not The Abolition of Man? The Abolition of Man would make the top five. I'd put that. I might make that one my number one. Yeah. 
it's only one of those that I've actually read. Well, because I think there's only one of those that most people should actually read. It's the rest of his books are of interest for English scholars, mm-hmm. English literature scholars, and that's because that's who he should have been. And so what you have is how early in his life he had this divide between rationalism and imagination, mm-hmm. which um, would then finally culminate in that famous argument, Tolkien, where Tolkien would finally convince him that actually the most reasonable thing to think and to see is that Christ is the myth mm-hmm. of all myths, and he's myth made reality, and that would finally make Lewis a Christian. Now what he had warring was his actual talent, which was English literature scholarship, versus his other side hobby, which was being a Christian apologist. <laughs> his little side hustle. Which, well when he it. did it, the one humbly, was actually good, because mm-hmm. he could do it well. Mere Christianity is not bad. Yeah. What he never was, was much of a theologian, and he... Yeah. If you want to be the most charitable way to say it is he made some boo-boos. And one of the big ironies, I think, is that he started out his career by criticizing T.S. Eliot for being too obscure Mm -hmm. and new, doing things to literature that shouldn't be done with poetry, even though what T.S. Eliot actually was doing was just kind of writing just good poetry. C.S. Lewis just didn't want to see that. What C.S. Lewis actually ended up doing, and which oddly enough are a lot of his fans' favorite books, was doing bad theology in the way that he thought T.S. Eliot was doing bad poetry. And in other words, amateurish. That's a pretty fair take. Amateurish, but confident in a way that it shouldn't have been confident. And so then you get reflections on the psalm. You get- Which is, has some nice insights and also some straight up wickedness. Yeah. Mm. You get- He calls some of the psalms, some of the imprecatory psalms, the ones where David calls down God's wrath. He calls them what? uh, The ravings of a madman, I think. You get till we have faces. He, he calls he calls them wicked. He calls them evil. Yeah, he calls them. Yeah. He just takes parts of, of scripture and says they're bad, to to put it succinctly. <laughs> and you till we have faces. And these are just books that shouldn't have been written. I think till we have faces is a wicked book. That's yeah. what I've decided. And so I know this is going to make so many people angry, especially people who are just coming to this for the first time. But if you don't believe us, go back and listen to our series on till we have faces, and then try to tell us we're wrong, mm-hmm. and try to use. Something other than just I liked it. Unra- irrational malice. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sometimes I think I know why people hate us. <laughs> because we're never high handed. Yeah. That's why. Because yeah. they're full of irrational malice. <laughs> All our enemies are full of irrational malice. <laughs> yeah. We, we have, what's the opposite of irrational malice? All we do is we have rational, rational charity. charity. Yeah. And all our enemies have is irrational malice. <laughs> No, it's a touchy subject because people really like C.S. Lewis. They feel affection for him. You know, there's some authors that you like, and then there are authors that you really feel affectionate for, that you feel a personal kinship with, that you mm. you feel like they've kind of come as- alongside you and helped you, that they've spoken your language. C.S. Lewis is that way for thousands, hundreds, millions, whatever the number is. He's that way for lots and lots of people, and he has been since he was pop, since he first became popular. And so I think it's a little bit understandable. We can have a little charity on people. Not letting liking us I mean, beating the up fact on is, CS Lewis. If you're listening to this podcast, if you're a Christian, if you're generally or basically reformed, probably at this point in your life, C.S. Lewis has had a really significant impact on the way that you understand worship and praise right. and joy mm-hmm. and human nature that has been profoundly helpful to you. And that's just I, I think that's probably true of all three of us too, right? Absolutely. Yes. Like Okay, so a guy can do that, and he can also 
did a whole lot of other horrible things, and it doesn't invalidate all the good that he's done. If you've seen a Marvel movie, then you know that a lot of times fathers fail, and we the legacy <laughs> of our fathers is complicated at best. If Marvel movies have taught us nothing else, Spider-Man Far From Home has taught us nothing else. If Black Panther has taught us, it's that T'Chaka, like C.S. Lewis, <laughs> like Tony Stark, they all failed and like odin like odin they all have a complicated legacy that's right this is the monomyth of our time (laughs) that's right (laughs) but i think i I just want to reiterate i think there's a lot of authors who have done similar good things for people that people don't feel as personally connected to c.s lewis had a very warm style he's very avuncular in his in his more popular works and people just feel a a kinship it's like you're making fun of someone's dad or beating up on someone's dad I think we get to another issue when we, so we watched the movie Shadowlands. Mm -hmm. I think the other part of it is with a certain group of people, there is not just beauty, but comfort to that sort of British lifestyle. Yes. Just the Britishness of the way he was and lived, the simplicity Mm -hmm. of it, the beer and pipes and just the simple, straightforward way of living and just his love of books and literature and all that. They just, that's like what for these people seems like the height of all things yeah that movie shadow lions is like anglophile porn i mean yeah. that's a bad way of putting it but it's it's just like if you like that kind of stuff little cottage oh. cozy cottages with smoke coming out of the chimneys and all that kind of stuff there's a lot of people who this would be their fantasy mm-hmm. this this sort of english pastoral literary lifestyle a lot of homeschooling classical education classical education well, especially conservative yeah. christians who see, yes. who see the modern culture crumbling around us they they, they sort of romanticize and you but know the problem sure with we've romantic- all three fallen prey to this romanticize yeah, so, an earlier time sorry yeah no go ahead. and so the problem with romanticizing it though is then you then instead of throwing out the baby with the bathwater, you drink the dirty bath water <laughs> right <laughs> instead of keeping the baby yeah. and throwing out the bath water you keep the baby and then you drench yourself in the filthy bath water right thinking that it's rose-scented or something. Right. Right. <laughs> Great metaphor. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the modern day C.S. Lewis is providing <laughs> this context. <laughs> um, um, so then to just quickly finish his life. Yeah. Finish him off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In 55, he wrote Surprised by Joy. And Yay. that meant that through the 50s, Ish. he had had this relationship with Joy Davidman. Mm-hmm. People can go and they can look up this relationship. But Surprised by Joy, not about being surprised by a lady named Joy. No, not about her, but it was during this period that he had this relationship. Mm-hmm. Surprised by Joy is his autobiography. You can go and you can read it and you can see the way that he told his story. In the late, around 56, he would... Would this be a good part, place for me to insert a little pederasty? Yeah, and so, actually, yeah, let's go ahead and do that. Surprised by Joy was this reflection back on his life. It was his attempt to make sense of this imaginative longing that he had had since he was a nine-year-old boy that then picked up some gray tones in high school with the Northern Norseness mm-hmm. and then was baptized with Fantasties and finally had the nail in the coffin with uh, Tolkien, mm-hmm. or I guess was brought to life by Tolkien right. is the better way. The nail was, it. the final nail was pulled out of the coffin. And he said, arise by right. creation. <laughs> Go ahead. Two, two good well, metaphors in a row. But so, yeah, my metaphors are great, Nathan. Surprised by Joy, his autobiography. He's looking back on his life. Now, I'm sure certain people who have conferences about C.S. Lewis or maybe even read about C.S. Lewis at big Christian conventions <laughs> might take issue with us for calling out this passage so much. Mm-hmm. But there's a problem with this passage. Yeah, and I think it has to do with the way he says it. Yeah. So and, go ahead and read And, and, and I, I'm going to set this up with a little charity and say, I think I kind of know what he was getting at, but also I don't excuse what he says here. Let me just read this section. 
And he's talking about his boarding school. And, well, let me just read it. Quote, if those of us who have known a school like Wavern dared to speak the truth, we should have to say that pederasty, however great and evil in itself, was in that time and place the only foothold or cranny left for certain good things. It was the only counterpoise to the social struggle, the one oasis, though green only with weeds and moist only with bedded water, in the burning desert of competitive ambition. In his unnatural love affairs, and perhaps only there, the blood, that's the name of a certain kind of dude in the fraternity or whatever you want to think of it, the blood went a little out of himself, forgot for a few hours that he was one of the most important people there are. It softens the picture. A perversion was... The o- a perversion was the only chink left through which something spontaneous and uncalculating could creep in. Plato was right after all. Eros, turned upside down, blackened, distorted, and filthy, still bore the traces of his divinity. Unquote. Yeah. Um. So his point was that there was this social order that was just nasty with some people on top and some people on bottom. And everyone was out to be selfish and to get what they could for themselves. And then you had this, these moments of love basically. moments of moments where you suddenly weren't thinking about yourself, but were thinking about the other person, uh, the person you were taking advantage of. Right. It was transcendent. Yeah. Ultimately that's what it's about. It's, it's transcendent. It had even turned upside down and blackened bore black and distorted and filthy still bore the traces of his divinity. And what, his so divinity. he said the fetid, what was it? The water? Uh, yeah, this was, this was wonderful. Um, the the one oasis, though green only with weeds and moist only with fetid water. Yeah, and so what you see here is how this desire for this feeling of transcendence, and we mm-hmm. haven't put the put it in that words those words yet, but that's what he's talking about. So when you have like some cheap Christian artists mm-hmm. always talk about how the art makes them feel transcendent, mm-hmm. it transcends themselves, man, and that's what art does. It makes you transcend yourself. And feel like you are no longer yourself. It's transcendent. It gets you to these higher truths. Well, that was the article. That was a silly article when Gospel Coalition we were making fun of in that episode yeah. that we alluded to earlier. Carpool. They took a carpool karaoke, one of those James Corden things, and said. And did this big, like, faux C.S. Lewis praise of the transcendent. The transcendent themes, the joy. The, tran- yeah. the transcendent joy of Paul McCartney's carpool karaoke was like the name, maybe the actual name of. Yeah, the, the joyful lo- it was the joyful longing of carpool karaoke. That was the name of the article. Yeah, which is just so, nonsense. And so this is where actually then to go back to John Betjeman one more time. Mm-hmm. This is where his critique begins to make a little bit of sense because what he's saying is that poetry, and we talked a lot about this in our poetry episodes, it doesn't transcend you. It gets you to take delight in things. It gets you to take delight in the created world. Right. That's what good poetry does. It says, look. To take one of those sillier examples, there's a red wheelbarrow, right? Right, glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. That's the poem. Right. It doesn't. There's nothing transcendent about it, and people get bollocked up to use a British word, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what is transcendent about this poem and how does this trans, how does this help me to be transcendent and mm-hmm. all this stuff. And that's just them perverting the point of art. And C.S. Lewis had this sort of art worship like that. He had that tendency within himself, and he confused that with religion. Right. Well, his famous essay, the it, most famous essay and the one that you should read if you want to understand all this is The Weight of Glory. And it's yes. about how we all have this longing. And when we eat a cookie, when we have sex, when we do anything in search of any kind of pleasure, we're looking for this longing to be fulfilled. But any of the things I just mentioned, they don't ultimately fulfill it. They might fulfill it in a moment. Where mm-hmm. does this longing come from? It's built into us because we have a longing for the divine. 
Mm-hmm. It's longing. riffing in a lot of ways on Augustine. If I find my in myself, uh, or that's actually a Lewis quote, isn't it? Yeah, from it that is. thing. Yeah, if I find in myself a longing that nothing in this world can fill, it there must must be. mean that I was made for another world. Yeah, yep, right. I just started to attribute that to Augustine. That's actually a quote from Lewis in that exact yeah, from that essay. Essay, yeah, and. I think there's something to be said for the essay and something to be said for that concept even. Absolutely. But- Yes, there is. What ends ends up happening inevitably is that I think C.S. Lewis was guilty of this and certainly his followers have been guilty, is they make that longing into the point. Mm -hmm. The point is achieving a transcendent longing. I want to yearn for you. I want to burn with passion over you and only you. And so the yearning yearning becomes a point in and of itself. It's about- riling up and getting this yearning and 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 sort of entering into the yearning and it's all about enjoying the transcendent yearning when in fact the yearning should settle on something hard and real and true which is the almighty god yeah or which is the cookie even you know but it's like the desire for a cookie is not the wonderful thing eating a cookie is desire is and, and so i don't know if that dichotomy or that i don't know if that's clear but you know it's it's making an idol out of the longing itself and I think a lot of modern Christian literature, not not fiction literature, but just Christian writing is guilty of this. And inevitably, they will quote C.S. Lewis. You'll see articles written by people finding longing, joyful longing in things like Carpool Karaoke. And that article quoted C.S. Lewis, quoted Weight of Glory. But yeah, I, I do. And whether Lewis, how far Lewis took that, we don't really know. But we do know what his, how far his followers take it. Well, and we have some bad signs when he's yeah. willing to see transcendent longing in That's true, pederasty yeah. or in the rank, bloody, nasty paganism yeah. of till we have faces. And what you begin to see is that for Lewis, this whole drifting towards myth and the longing of myth, yearning that he got from that poem he read when he was a child and this Norseness that he was in love with, that became Christianity for him. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of a lot of the ways that he interpreted yep. Christianity was through that lens, and um, that had all sorts of problems for him. It's kind of an Etruscan bed kind of like he just he, he would bend bend and break things yeah. and um, to make them fit that mold. <clears throat> yeah. Well, yeah, and what he would never do is submit himself to Scripture when Scripture didn't accord with that vision. He would literally, in his books, call Scripture wicked. Right. Yeah. Using that word. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's Lewis. Yeah. <laughs> well, he got married towards the end of 58, towards the end of the 50s and 58. Mm-hmm. She died quickly after that. And then he died quickly after that in 63, mm-hmm. 11, 22, and 63. And so we've talked a lot about how it's difficult to really pinpoint who Lewis is. A lot of people have their own interpretations, a, a fun postscript to this. Mm-hmm. If you ever guys heard about, <laughs> if you guys ever read about the uh, C.S. Lewis hoax controversy, you know who Walter Hooper is? This episode is going to drop all kinds of knowledge on people that weren't looking for it. <laughs> hey. I'm all for it. It'll scare the right people off, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so the C.S. Lewis hoax. <laughs> this is a weird postscript to his life. But you know what? I think this episode's gone pretty long. Can the C.S. Lewis ho- hoax actually be our cliffhanger for next time? Well, yeah. I thought you were going to bring it all back home. I was going to bring it to T.S. Oh, Eliot. No, let's, okay. do, let's start out with the uh, C.S. Lewis hoax That would be a fun cliffhanger. How does this all tie, How back, does this to all tie back into TSL? <laughs> How does this all well? Yeah. And why did Brandon Google, why is TSL a Christian and C.S. Lewis isn't? <laughs> yeah. That is a, well, let me, let's, let's end. Can I end this in with a quote from T.S. Eliot? Absolutely. Here's an actual quote from T.S. Eliot towards the end of his life. Why should men love the church? Why should they love her laws? 
She tells them of life and death and of all that they would forget. She is tender where they would be hard and hard where they would like to be soft. She tells them of evil and sin and other unpleasant facts. They constantly try to escape from the darkness outside and within by dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. But the man that is will sh- the man that is will shadow the man that pretends to be. That's T. S. <laughs> that is T. S. Eliot. Shots fired. Right on. We like C. S. Lewis, though. <laughs> we do. All right, I'm going to read our donors. We have. If this is your first episode, you should know that people support us at ten dollars a month on Patreon, and if they do at least that much, we give them a something called a donor shout out. I'm going to read these names, and I will alternate between you two guys. You can give them a little shout-out of your choice. Okay. We'll do this very quickly. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds, Brandon. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. The artful Nathan. Anthony Dodger. The artful Anthony Dodger. Little Anthony. Little Anthony. Cigar, Cigar store. store. The immortal Chelsea The immortal Chelsea E. Maybe even a little Annie Oakley. Maybe even a little Annie Oakley. Lily of the Valley. Lily of the Valley. Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds. Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds. The inscrutable Jenny Z. The inscrutable Jenny Z. The Keith Master. The Keith Master. David's Mighty Man Trucking. David's Mighty Man Trucking. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. Mm, Jane Kitty or Cold and Love Cheese. Jane Kitty or Cold and Love Cheese. And all the kids. Hey, hey kids. All the kids. Hey, Junior. Great kids. My beloved mother, Beth. Nathan's beloved mother, Beth. Console Prime Blue. What? <laughs> console Prime Blue. You were here for Console Prime Blues. And <laughs> I I was no, I was not. Us. Hey, or Danny, uh, stuff. Danny was with us. Console Prime Blue? Console no, Prime no. Blue. Nope, that never happened. Well, in any case, Console Prime Blue is one of our supporters, so. Console Prime Blue. Console Prime Blue. Adam, the Smasher of Worlds. Adam, the Smasher of Worlds. Galactic Princess Emily. Galactic Princess Emily. A lot of things have changed since the last time I was here. Has uh, it been so long? You were on the episode where we premiered all these names, Jake. Yeah, I was not. Yeah. That was, that, that was where I became the Lord of Validation. What? You were really tired that day. I must have been. You, you had gotten up at like five o'clock. That was the day your smoke alarm went off. I don't know why I remember oh, this. Oh, yeah. So you were that pretty- That was a horrible day. You were pretty out of it, actually. Was it legitimate going off? I have no idea. Horace did that the other day. It was, it was spooky. I know it that. was very spooky and I couldn't get back to sleep. Yeah. And it was horrible. All right. You guys are both going to burn to death, but we need to get through these. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Somebody after us. Fletcher, the woe-bedraggled wizard of yore. Fletcher, the woe-bedraggled wizard of yore. Jeremy, the dark-hooded lord of death. Jeremy, the dark-hooded lord of death. Nathan, not me, of course. Nathan, not Nathan, of course. The incandescent Meredith. The incandescent Meredith. Maya! Maya! Ryan, the Red Avenger, and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Ryan, the Red Avenger, and Judy, the... Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Formerly Rock and Ryan and Judo Judith, but we yeah. decided we would upgrade them to a cooler name. K.A. Danny the Dude. <laughs> Danny the Dude. <laughs> Sorry. Danny, if you want us to upgrade you, I like Danny the Dude. Danny the Dude's amazing. If you want a cooler name, though, you can have one. Just let us know. If you DJ complain, Sammy you're Danny G. the Dudette. Uh, Benny and Dana Tiberius. Benny and Dana Tiberius. Eric and Catherine the Lovebirds. Eric and Catherine the Lovebirds. And of course, last but not least, Professor and Lady X. Professor and Lady X. Hey, guys. Hey, thanks everybody for supporting our podcast. Go to patreon.com forward slash the booking to help us out. We're going to be back next week to find out what? What T.S. Eliot had to do. Oh, the, the C.S. Lewis hoax. To find out about the C.S. Lewis hoax. And, and what T.S. Eliot had to do with it. Yeah. We, we I mean, will. We people will can puzzle that quote out and see <laughs> what they think. T.S. <laughs> Lewis like put on a fake mustache and yeah. pretend to be C.S. Uh, we will be back next week. We are going to start discussing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We are also going to give our baggage, read Mr. Lewis, and a fun time will be had by all. 
The Booking was written and produced by me, Nathan. Executive produced, like all fine Warhorn products by me and Jake. So yeah. see you Thank next you. week, everybody. Bye.